This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. Hello and welcome. Our topic today, pandemics, what else, and power. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. It's clear, I guess, to just about everyone on the planet that we're living in a strange new world. The relationship between leader and citizen has changed and our leaders have more power, some of them much more power. But do they have more than is good for them? Or more importantly, do they have more than is good for us? Here to discuss that, we have Ken Roth, Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, Meg Davis of Geneva's Graduate Institute, and our resident analyst and sometimes devil's advocate, Daniel Warner. Now, I'm going to turn to you, Ken Roth, first, because the thing is, in an emergency, a global pandemic like this, We want our governments to deal with it. We want them to have the power to get through this emergency, don't we? Absolutely. We we rightfully look to governments to protect us. And it's important to recognize that international human rights law contemplates governments taking additional powers in times of crisis, so long as those powers are necessary and proportionate to meet the threat. And so, for example, you know, nobody challenges the ability of governments to limit our travel, to enforce social distancing, things of that sort. But what we're also seeing is governments that are going beyond what's necessary and are actually seizing this moment as an opportunity to enhance their power, to uh, silence their critics, to pursue their own political interests rather than the health of the public. And we see you know, overt power grabs in places like Hungary or Cambodia. We see governments responding with unnecessary brutality in places like the Philippines or Nigeria or Kenya. Um, We see governments censoring critics as well as um, information about the pandemic if they feel that that kind of information will be embarrassing, Um, even though the free flow of information is absolutely essential to meet a public health crisis of the sort. So, I mean, yes, we do contemplate enhanced governmental powers, but you need scrutiny too, because you can't trust governments and governments, at least the more unsavory ones, the more autocratic ones, are taking this as a chance to pursue their own political interests rather than the health of the public. Mick Davis, let me ask you, because to begin with, of course, the virus was first reported in China and there was a lot of kind of knee-jerk assumption, oh, you know, China, they can crack down easily. It's It's an autocratic government. They're not going to be transparent with the information. Yet when it spreads around the world, some of the most evolved democracies also have problems keeping their democracy and coping with this. Yeah, Imogen, I think one of the things we're really seeing here is this kind of the the impact of, you know, chronic failure to invest in fulfilling the fundamental human right to health in many of our countries, whether you consider them to be evolved democracies or unevolved democracies or devolving democracies in some cases, the lack of investment in fundamental health services and ensuring universal access to healthcare for all 
is part of what has set us up for this crisis. And that's one thing that China, and I'm as critical as anyone you know about China, but one of the things they did very well is actually investing in health systems and ensuring that people who were tested were actually able to receive care. The thing that they did poorly and one of the fault lines in China's response was their, as Ken has pointed out, their, their lack of respect for freedom of expression, the lack of access to information, and that initial crackdown, uh, censorship of people like Dr. Li Wenliang is part of what got us into this fix now. Gani, let's look a bit at the country we're actually living in, Switzerland, because I was really interested in what Meg said there about investment in health services, because, you know, we are theoretically living in a country with one of the best health systems in the world. And yet, basically, we were told six weeks ago when the lockdown here started, you must do this, you must stay in, you can only go out very briefly to shop. And what it seemed to reveal was that we have a a health service for the good times, but not for a time like this when a pandemic arrives, i.e. many, many governments didn't properly prepare. Well, the question can come back to Ken's point. The question to me is who is in charge? Switzerland is a federal system like the United States. And what we see in both the United States and Switzerland is a tension between the federal government and the local governments. Trump can say he has total authority, but the governors have said, no, we are the ones who are going to make the final decisions. And he's actually walked back on that. So in Switzerland, the federal government has set certain guidelines, but it's up to the cantonal governments to make those decisions. And the cantonal governments have been very different in what they've said. So the health system, in a sense, is not a national system. It's more a local system. I found it interesting listening, actually, just staying in Switzerland to the Swiss president, uh, Simonetta Sommaruga, who actually said at a press conference just a few days ago that her government didn't want to have these emergency powers. And she said, I'm glad that we're having these press conferences every day because we need the media to ask us questions. Is that the kind of statement, Ken Roth, that you'd like to be hearing from government leaders? Or do you think it's it's more kind of eyewash? Well, with respect to the role of the media, absolutely. Um, In other words, the only way to fight a virus like this, a pandemic, effectively is to have a clear flow of information from the ground to the public and a clear ability to critique the governmental response to the information as that becomes available. And so, you know, the best public health strategy is one that is completely open and subject to scrutiny. By contrast, you know, when you have governments that are most concerned with protecting themselves rather than their publics, you get, you know, things like Thailand, where they say, um, you can only, journalists can only report on the official press conference. They cannot speak to medical personnel in the field. Or Modi, who's trying to um, convince the Indian Supreme Court to say journalists have to clear anything they say before they publish. And of course, you know, as Meg indicated, the, the disastrous illustration of that was in Wuhan, where the um, you know, young doctors who tried to warn us in late December were um, suppressed for three weeks. Rather than heated, they were censored. And there's a study at the University of Southampton that indicates that that disastrous three-week delay um, not only let the virus go global, that's why we have a global pandemic today, but if the government had actually been fighting the virus during those three weeks, um, the prevalence would have been 95% less than um, at the end of that period. So you know, it just shows that censorship kills. The best public health strategy 
is one that is open to journalistic scrutiny and the free flow of information. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Ken on this point. Um, but I think, you know, this really also points to the many ways in which health data is deeply political. And we think of health data as being neutral, as being something that's easily measured. But in fact, in many cases, health data is both hard to capture because people that we want to most know information about are often the most hidden. So it might be elderly, they might be undocumented migrants. So those are cases that we actually don't get data on because they're afraid to come forward or unable to come forward for one reason or another. And then also health data that makes leaders look bad can often be suppressed. So we have cases in uh, many parts of the world where leaders are suppressing cases of uh, reported cases of deaths linked to COVID because it makes them look bad. And this is also disastrous in terms of having a, a coordinated global response to the outbreak. Okay, I want to play you a couple of other clips. We started the program talking about pandemics and power and are some leaders taking more than is good for us? It looks like in some maybe not unexpected quarters that is happening. Hungary has been under a state of emergency since early March because of the coronavirus. That has been extended with no time limits. I will not hesitate. My orders are shoot them dead. We are ready for you. So we heard there in Hungary, Viktor Orban giving himself indefinite emergency powers. We heard a pretty chilling warning from Philippines President Duterte about what might happen to people who break the curfew. Now, there is a concern, Ken at Human Rights Watch, this has been expressed, that if leaders take these powers, we see that in Hungary, they may never give them back. I mean, that's absolutely the case in, in some countries. And Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, illustrates that in the sense that he has given himself essentially dictatorial powers. He can rule now by decree without parliamentary oversight, and he can postpone elections indefinitely unless the parliament, which his party controls, says you need to have elections. So this is a dictatorship. And the big question there is, what will the European Union do about that? Will they continue to generously subsidize this power grab, or will they use the power of the purse to, to press Orban to, to move back? This is all worrying, though, because you know, you see variations of this around the world, but, um, you know, autocrats are not looking out for the public. They look out for themselves. And so here at a moment of crisis, at a moment when they should be saying, what do we need to do to protect people? They're saying, aha, you know, this is a chance to take more power for myself, to deliberately stymie any efforts by the opposition to criticize or to challenge us. You know, we're going to cement an autocracy for the long term. So you see that kind of opportunism, and that's why it's absolutely essential for, for programs like this and for journalists overall to be fighting back, to highlight these points and to, to really generate pressure for it to stop. But Danny, I expect for your average person in the street, you know, they're not going to be too worried at this point about power grabs. They're just going to be thinking, I need to get through this. I need my government to support me to get through this. I need to be able to go back to work. They can do what they like for the time being. Well, not being overly political scientist, it's interesting that Ken mentioned the EU, because in times of crisis, we see people becoming very nationalist. But what about internationalist? And I use two examples. One is Ken's example of the EU, but the second would be the World Health Organization. We talked about data. Isn't it the WHO, which should have used all the data from all the countries? We should be looking to them 
And here's an example of autocratic creep when Trump says, I'm going to defund them now for a period of time. So in a period of pandemic, why do we become so nationalist when the pandemic is pandemic and we should look for some kind of international response? Meg, what do you think about that? Because one of the reasons we're seeing a bit of a a split, maybe, although there were cracks already in the whole multilateral approach to this pandemic, is that the WHO, which would be the multilateral kind of leader, if you like, here, is perceived to have been too friendly to China. You know, I, all my sympathies go to the WHO, though I've often been critical of their silence on issues around human rights and gender uh, and their lack of resourcing of work in that area. But in this case, I think they were in a tough spot because China was the place where we first saw the outbreak. They sent a team to China. They wrote, you know, I think generally a fairly accurate report about uh, some of the things that China was doing well, but they didn't talk about some of the issues around censorship, about repression of whistleblowers, of, of citizen journalists and doctors who were blowing the whistle about this outbreak. And because they didn't do that, they're now having to pay a, a ridiculous price because at this particular moment, we really need WHO more than ever. And we need a, a functional, well-resourced, active organization uh, to, to analyze epidemiological data, gather evidence of what works, help different countries figure out how to apply it, and work together to establish norms so that this doesn't just become a huge uh, resource grab for big pharma and big tech giants. Well, we're also looking at some fairly, a loss of some fairly fundamental rights, the right to health, for example, for people in some of the poorest countries if the WHO's funding is cut. Oh, absolutely. And I think this is a case where, you know, uh, there's certainly a lot that we can do to strengthen WHO. That's not something you do in the middle of a crisis. Ken Ross, do you think the WHO should have been critical of China from the get-go, or was the policy to keep them sweet to get as much information as possible? I think we have to recognize that the WHO's access to information in China has been very limited. It only gets official information. And while there's a broad effort to um, collect information from a variety of sources, not just governmental ones, that has not succeeded in China. So the WHO is running blind. They just take the propaganda, the selected data that the Chinese authorities give them. So where I fault the WHO is for not being clear about that, you know, for being overly effusive. So that's a problem. That said, I agree with Meg, now is not the time to defund the WHO. And we should be clear what's going on here. Just as Xi Jinping is doing everything he can to prevent anybody from looking at that three-week delay that his censorship of the Wuhan whistleblowers caused, so Trump is doing everything he can to deflect attention from the two-week delay where he dawdled rather than taking the warnings from the WHO and others that he had to act expeditiously to fight the coronavirus. And there is a separate study showing that 90% of the deaths in the United States so far are attributable to that two-week delay. So, you know, Trump is using WHO as a scapegoat. He is saying, you know, let's change the subject. Let's attack somebody else so people don't look at what I did wrong. That's what's going on. But it is true, Ken, that China has now updated the number of deaths from the virus. So there has been some progress on that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, months later, and who knows whether that's true. In other words, still to this day, when journalists try to go to Wuhan, they get arrested. You know, when they try to talk to people independently, they get followed and the the, the potential witnesses are intimidated away. So there is zero independent information coming out right now through any kind of journalistic channel. You can still go to social media. There, There are other ways to find out what's going on, but the government is doing everything it can to this day to prevent independent scrutiny of its response to the coronavirus. 
I agree. And I just want to come in and say that I think one of the things that's scary about that is uh, we're talking about the current epidemic and, you know, we're always, generals are always trying to fight the previous battle. We're not ready now to deal with the next outbreak that's going to happen. And if that comes from China, will that information come to light or will it be suppressed again? That brings me neatly on to our next uh, element of this program about pandemics and power. And that is, what do we do to prevent a pandemic like this? Do we have to give up some of our own personal privacy, our data protection? Now, have a listen to this advertisement from Singapore. Play your part in fighting COVID-19 with just two simple steps. One, download Trace Together and help those around you to set it up. Two, turn on your Bluetooth. So that's encouraging everyone to download an app, which means they can be tracked and their contacts tracked. Now, European countries are looking at this. Everybody is desperate to prevent another economic crash, because let's face it, we have one. We, the world can't afford, probably, to do another six to eight week, two month, three month lockdown. Meg, let me ask you first, because I know you've been taking a close look at this. This issue of, of data protection, does this concern you or is this the new normal we're going to have to learn to live with? I think it's very concerning, Imogen, because I think we are racing into embracing a new technology without really having adequate governance and policies and understanding even of what it is that we are putting in place. So there's now this big push in many countries and in the UK now there's this new partnership with uh, Palantir, which is a company with a very scary track record in the US, to do contact tracing, to use people's mobile phones to figure out when two people have been close to each other, physical space. If one of them has uh, been a person with COVID, you know, is that other person at risk? So it could potentially then give you a, a, a message or, or a flag for others that you are someone who needs to be quarantined or, or put in social isolation. But for many people, that raises really serious risks. And we've seen in Singapore and South Korea that even where the data was anonymized, it was sometimes possible for people to figure out potentially or to assume that they knew who the person was, which then exposes people to risk of violence, discrimination. For women and girls, it raises risks of intimate partner violence. And we don't really fully understand yet what the role is of these tech giants who are going to be capturing this data, who owns the data, who can sell it which laws govern it? And all of these are questions that really need some thought. Finally, I think the major concern is this race to do contact tracing without actually having invested in health clinics. So we identify people, are we actually able to care for them? Danny, you've got a smartphone, I've got a smartphone. What would be if you had any hesitations of yours about having an app like that? The question always to me is who's deciding and are there any checks and balances? If you say there's a real emergency, I would say most people might say, okay, I'll give up some of my privacy if, but the question is, once you give a little if and say, okay, you can do this because I see a greater harm, when is it going to end? And am I sure it's going to be used properly? And I think that's the problem here. And if, as Meg said, it's going to lead to a certain form of following us, knowing this stuff about us, selling our information, then maybe we have to say it's not worth it. So those are the kinds of ethical decisions that people are going to have to make. Ken Roth, what's Human Rights Watch's position on this? I mean, our view is that these apps are not going to work unless people see them as protecting their privacy as much as possible. 
because it requires people to download the apps, it requires people to take their phones with them, it requires cooperation. And so you just won't get that cooperation if people feel that this is just an effort to grab their data rather than do what's absolutely necessary to protect them. And so, I mean, Meg mentioned South Korea, that epitomizes the wrong approach. There, they collected people's location data, you know, every place you went, and then they broadcast that if you were found to have been infected. And so, you know, people's private liaisons were revealed, people's private lives were revealed. Location data is incredibly intrusive. Now, the good news is that this new approach, the, the Apple-Google approach, and there's a parallel one in Europe, uses Bluetooth rather than location data. Um, and that's a step forward because it, the Bluetooth technology doesn't depend on where you are. It just focuses on what other phones were you near. So that's a step forward, but it still is going to require various privacy guarantees. You know, will that data be held only for the two weeks that is viable, after which, you know, people are no longer infectious? At that point, does it automatically get deleted? Does it go to some central repository or does it stay in people's phones? You know, is it only shared with health authorities or do security forces get it? You know, there, there are a number of questions like this. You know, does the person who is the, the spreader of the disease, does that person get identified since there's no reason for that? All you need to know is you're near somebody who had the coronavirus. But, you know, if these privacy protections are in place, yes, people will use the app. If they're not, they, they will not cooperate. Let's just go back to Danny's point. He was saying what his hesitancy would be to, to, to have an app like that. And he's saying, like, how far does it go? How, how long will this last. And one of the things I've heard from human rights organizations is that if we look back historically, say, to, to the war on terror, powers are taken, intrusions are made into people's lives, tracking and, and, and bugging of phones and so on. And these powers are then used in a much broader way than was originally intended. I think that's true, Imogen. I think what we've also seen is that those powers often are used against people who are already marginalized. And I think this outbreak is really revealing the deep roots of inequality uh, that, that have just spread uh, in the past few years even, and that the people who are most penalized and who suffer the, the worst police abuses, the worst infractions, the highest vulnerability to these outbreaks are the homeless, are people living in slums, people who don't have space for social distancing, sex workers who have to go out on the street to work, people who have to go out and seek food and water, uh, unaccompanied children. And so it's really revealing, I think, the, the depths of inequalities that have existed. And those are the people who, when states amass new powers, are, are often the most vulnerable. Danny, these are things, in fact, I have a, a, a statement from UN Human Rights arrived this morning looking particularly at the world's most vulnerable and their difficulties in a pandemic like this. So the homeless people, so people in care homes, so people, in fact, in prisons. The ICRC is, is trying to draw attention to that. How do you social distance in a, in a, in a prison in, in, for example, the Philippines? And yet because we're all so focused on what's going on on our own patch, these groups are in danger of being neglected. Oh, I think of people in refugee camps, and I'm thinking of the potential of what can happen in these refugee camps, which are overwhelmed now as far as health is concerned, and what's going to happen there. But I come back to my point about nationalism. We're all worried about number one. Uh, and that's us for the moment. And the ability to think about people in refugee camps, people who are vulnerable, 
I think it's going to be very, very difficult. And therefore, the moment of kind of deglobalization, instead of looking out for a larger world, technology and otherwise, I think people are going to turn much more inward. And I think there are going to be the real problems as we get out of this. We are, as ever, almost at the end of the program. It goes by very, very quickly. I have one last question, though, for all of you. I'm going to start with Ken Roth from Human Rights Watch. It's up to us, isn't it, I guess, to make sure that our governments stay democratic, don't move towards autocracy, don't get too used to the powers which... As somebody from the WHO said, we have gifted them for the time of this pandemic, but but no further. I sadly see many parallels between the coronavirus pandemic and the terrorist attack of September 11, 2001. In each case, um, people were afraid, legitimately so, and they asked their governments to protect them. In each case, governments overreached. And it was very difficult to roll back that overreach. So if you look just at the United States, you know, we still have Guantanamo. The Bush CIA torturers still have never been prosecuted. We still have targeted killings by drones. And we still have this huge surveillance program that was begun with 9-11 and only marginally cut back. We at least today have that lesson of the past. And I think the burden is really on us as citizens to scrutinize what governments are doing and to ensure that, yes, as we call on them to protect us, are they acting solely with that interest? Are they doing the least they can to intrude on our rights? Or are they opportunistically using this to enhance their own powers? Ultimately, it's up to us to hold our governments to account and to ensure that they really do only what's necessary to protect public health. Meg, is it up to us to remind our governments that there needs to be a better focus on our public health systems as well? Uh, Yes, definitely. And I think uh, this is certainly a dark moment, but also potentially an opportunity. If we can uh, look at the bright side, we've seen massive community mobilization in many places in in a way that we hadn't seen before. We've seen growing awareness of how critical it is to have investment in our health systems. And maybe now more people talking and thinking about human rights than they did in the past. So the question is, how are we going to use this to create a different world when we come out of this crisis? Danny, I'm going to give the very last word to you. Are you optimistic, pessimistic about the, the kind of new normal that's likely to emerge from this pandemic? No, I wrote something after September 11th saying, are we getting into a permanent state of war? And I think Ken Roth's point about permanent emergencies, state of war against terror, now it's the pandemic, we're getting closer to a kind of mentality where people are saying, we have to have these permanent states because we're so afraid of whatever's going to come. So I'm slightly pessimistic. And on that note, we've reached the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My apologies, it's not been the most optimistic of topics. But this isn't, to be honest, the most hopeful moment for our world. My thanks to our guests, Ken Roth, Meg Davis and Daniel Warner, and to you for listening. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. 
to subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.